0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Indus,
1: number one in its field.
0: Stephen Arnold has been a very notable absentee from the ranks of Australia's top jockeys these past 15 months. Experts agree that Steve has had the talent to match it with the very best right through his career, but his height of 5 foot 10 or 178 centimetres and the resultant weight problems have made it very tough for him to continue in the game he loves. His last race ride in Australia was on Land of Plenty in the Rosehill Guineas two years ago. He rode out the rest of 2017 under contract in Mauritius where he won the Premiership and two of the biggest races on the island. Steve still rides work six mornings a week at Lloyd Williams' famous Macedon Lodge but the prospects of his returning to the saddle are looking slim. Let's talk to a man who has 21 Group 1s on his CV, including the Stand Stakes at Royal Ascot on Scenic Blast. Stephen Arnold, it's a delight to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much, John. Uh, Great to hear from you.
0: Six months ago, you hadn't completely dismissed a return to race riding, but with every passing day, the prospects are looking more daunting.
1: Yes, John, it's, uh, as you say, I I, uh, had a break when I came back from Mauritius and I've sort of extended that breakout. Just the main thing's through the weight, you know, the weight's been uh, obviously an issue for me, you know, my whole career and um, I'm not getting any younger, I'm 44 years of age now, so... Mm. Um, and I've got a family, so, uh, it's quite a selfish life being a heavyweight jockey. So, uh, I've sort of dedicated a little bit more of my time to, to the family and still enjoy riding work, but, uh, yeah, a return, uh, it's probably, uh, not favorite at the moment, just mm. through, uh, you know, basically through the weight and, you know, I'm a realist the opportunities, I would say, are, you know, starting to dry up a bit. So, um, yeah, uh, probably unlikely for me to make a return, John.
0: How much weight? As we speak today, how much weight would you need to lose to come back to riding?
1: Well, I'm still very lean. If you looked at me, you'd think I could I could sort of ride tomorrow. But mm. um, I'm I'd have to lose a good ten kilos or twelve kilos. And as I say, off off a, off a light frame as we are, so mm. um, I can I could do it. I can physically do it because I, I was always very dedicated um, to it and, and I can do it, but it's just a, it's the mental drain of having to do it all again, you know. So um, at this stage, you're probably unlikely.
0: You lasted far longer than family and friends expected for two major reasons. Your success at the top level obviously inspired you and you manage your weight very carefully, very sensibly and very scientifically. You were never a silly waster, Steve, as some jockeys are.
1: No, I, I sort of uh, probably I prided myself on 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 being um, close to a hundred percent on race day, mm. which I, you know I always thought was very important. You know, I, I didn't want to get to the races and not be you know not be close to a hundred percent. So um, that took a lot of, uh, work in the preparation, I suppose. So, um, I, I tried to have my preparation as good as possible to be as light as I could. And then, and, and then be close to a hundred percent. So I could, you know, ride horses, um, you know, at at my best and not be sort of, um, not be just a passenger on them and not be, you know, a hundred percent right when I'm riding.
0: Mm. You told me once that you never, ever ate anything out of a packet.
1: Well, that—that's say when I was on. Obviously, you know, um, over the years I certainly have. But when I when I was on a certain strict diet, I, I used to um, I'd have no processed, you know, no processed stuff during the week. So it's basically um, it's it's pretty simple, really. So you know, anything out of the uh, out of packet's highly processed and and salt and sugar and all that. So. I, um, I used to avoid all that and, you know, obviously I had my downtime and all that, but on those strict diets for those times, yeah, that was sort of the way I went.
0: But you'd spend some time every day in the sauna.
1: Yeah, that's right. I'd, I'd sort of ride track work and then, um, you know, do a bit bit of training and that. But at, at then at some stage, I'd always um, probably have about an hour's sweat during the day. Just I felt, you know, everyone does it different. All jockeys are different. And they know their bodies differently. But I just felt it always kept me in touch to be to be lighter, to have my weight um, down lighter so I was always within range to be able to ride, mm. not have those big um, big amounts of weight to lose. That was my sort of theory about it. Yeah.
0: During the big carnivals for years, you tried hard to be available at 55.5 in the hope you just might pick up a decent ride in a Derby or an Oaks.
1: Yeah, that was sort of my um, always my goal when I was um riding at that level was over the carnival times you know the spring carnival in melbourne always tried to be as you say 55 and a half kilograms i thought that gave me a chance of um of winning a good race you know once you get once you get above 55 and a half then it makes it really really hard but if you can be within the 55 and a half range as i say you can ride those those horses in the set weight races and it, it gives you a chance, you know, to be competitive. It, once you uh, once you start getting over that, you're not competitive with the, with the good jockeys.
0: Let's go back a bit, Steve. You're a Territorian. Grew up in Alice Springs, one of three boys born to Keith and Sheila Arnold, and both mum and dad were jockeys. You had no hope.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, John. I was... Uh, yeah racing was definitely in the family and grew up around horses and and mum and dad always since the you know day I can remember always had uh, were training and had horses well in the in the backyard basically so uh grew up riding ponies and riding you know riding the ponies in the jockey saddles and uh since the day I could sort of walk basically so it was always uh always my passion and um had a, had a great childhood in Alice Springs where I was born. Um, always had the horses and the motorbikes and, a, as I say, always had a really great um, upbringing
0: there. Mm. Sadly, you lost your older brother, Tom. Younger brother, Douglas, is very interested in racing and he has a long-term plan to train one day.
1: Yeah, he's, he's really uh, passionate about the training side of things. Doug rode in races also, but he um, did a stint with John Size in Hong Kong, and he's done a few stints here with with different trainers. He's with Mick Ken at the moment, and um, I think he's got a really good idea about it, and at some stage it'd be great. You know, I think if he gets the opportunity to train, he'd love to do that, and um, I think he'd be pretty good at it, to be honest.
0: Well, here's something that might surprise your friends and associates. When you had your very first ride in a race at Alice Springs, I still can't believe this, you weighed 36.5 kilos.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think I think my old man always used to want me to be he said, Oh, you can't really ride till you're about thirty eight kilos because the 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 weight scale is quite quite heavy up there and just the sheer amount of lead and weight that I had to carry. Um I think I was I might have been fifteen when I had my first ride, but I had to I had to crib a bit and say I was thirty-eight to dad, but in I realistically I was about thirty-six and a half kilograms when I had my first ride, (laughs) and I I I couldn't I could hardly pick up the saddle, you know. So uh, Mm. when you think about it, it's funny now I've got a a twelve-year-old boy, and I think he's into the early thirties. When I look at him and think about putting him on a racehorse, I shake my head. Yeah, oh yeah.
0: (laughs) When it was obvious you were pretty committed to a riding career, mum and dad arranged for you to go to Adelaide. Where you became indentured to Ted Cameron, father of Russell Cameron. How long were you there with Ted?
1: Yeah, I, I, f- I first went down to Adelaide, and I was there about uh, I was there about six months. Mm-hmm. Had a great time with uh, with Ted and Russell there, and it was because I was a kid from from Alice Springs. You know, you're you're in the family environment very much. So you know, all all, all my life, and then it would have been a big step just to go, you know, maybe straight to Melbourne or a uh, or uh, yeah, someone we didn't know in Adelaide. So we knew um, Ted and Russell through a you know a connection in Darwin. They used to go to the Darwin Carnival. So it was more of a, a little bit of a family environment. They treated me very well and sort of took me in and uh, really looked after me. So it was a little bit of a lesser step to go to leave Alice Springs and go down to Adelaide with a, with a more family environment.
0: Yep. Then came an 18-month stint at Flemington with Lee Friedman, Possibly Australia's most high-profile trainer at that time. What an experience for a kid from Alice Springs!
1: Yeah, certainly was. Got the chance to go to um, to the Friedman brothers. Basically, they were all together at that stage: um, Anthony, Lee, Michael, and Richard. So uh, it was a great opportunity to go over there. Um, really enjoyed it. Probably, um, I was probably a bit young. I wasn't that. I wasn't that. Um, Probably wasn't that street smart. I was um, a little mm. bit of a – probably a bit of a soft sort of a kid. Mm. And I went okay with uh, with the boys, but I really had a, a great experience. Went to Sydney um, for the carnival. I didn't get many rides, but just the opportunity to work with some great horses. Yeah. I got on really well with Anthony up there and um, mm. basically a great experience um, in my career.
0: You got to ride a couple of nice horses in track work. Uh, when based at Flemington with the Freedmans, you rode Scalacci a bit of work, you rode Superimpose a bit of work, and you got a very big buzz in August of 1992 when they put you on naturalism with the three-kilo claim in a race at Warwick Farm. You didn't win, you finished fifth, not far from the winner, and you, were, you thought you were g Moore. <laughs>
1: yeah long way long way from G. Moore at that stage but yeah I was, I was really um, you know I was, it was a great experience as you say to ride some of them great horses had a fair as you say had a fair bit to do with Scalacci before he ever raced and He's still probably one of the best gallopers I've ever ridden. Um, just an awesome, awesome galloper and, yeah, lucky enough to ride. Um, I, mean, I rode uh, uh, old Sub-Zero in a race and, uh, as mm. you say, naturalism. So, yeah, rode some pretty nice horses in races and when I was claiming three. So it was a good experience.
0: Next step, back to Adelaide to link up with Russell Cameron, who was training by then, and you really hit your straps. You won the Adelaide Jockeys Premiership as an apprentice. And then you won it a short time after as a fully fledged jockey. Two Adelaide titles.
1: Yeah, I I was going as I said okay in Melbourne, but to be honest, I wasn't. I wasn't a great apprentice when I was young. I didn't think I sort of just lacked a bit of. Uh, not, I wouldn't say killer, but I wasn't as you know probably wasn't as tough and as hardened as some of the apprentices. So, mm. um, I thought I'd go back to Adelaide and try and get a little bit more experience and you know rack up a few winners, which. Um, the competition was probably slightly less. I still, you know, there's Dwayne Dunn and Jason Holder and some very good riders there. But um, went back and I got more opportunities was probably the the key. And um, Russell and Ted were still there and they were, they were really, you know, they supported me all the way and um, basically become the stable jockey there. And as you say, yeah, had really good success in Adelaide. And gained a lot of confidence, um, sort of thought, you know, thought, um, thought my riding had improved a fair bit and um, gained a lot of confidence, which is, mm. you know, pretty important for a rider.
0: You were very young when you had your first overseas stint. You went to Malaysia for a while, then to Macau. Uh, you had a pretty fruitful two years, in fact, uh, in Macau. Aussie jockeys were flocking there at the time, and gee, there were some big name Australian riders at the t- same time you were there.
1: Yeah, that's right. There was some uh, some really good. It was a good opportunity to go to Macau. I just thought it was another maybe another step in my career. The weights were slightly better, and um, the chance to sort of uh, earn well was there. So um, there was Patrick Payne was there, and John Didham and um, Jeff Allandoff, actually, who's a really good friend of mine, still he was there riding at the time. And um,
0: Michael Carl was there.
1: Michael Carl was there. Yeah, great jockey and still riding today. And you know he's uh, yeah, as I say, first class jockey. And um, so I gained great experience over there. Not so much, not just in the racing industry, but real life experience to go away when you're younger and mm. get out of your comfort zone and really have to sort of fend for yourself and mm. work it out yourself. So I thought it was a really good, um, you know, life experience to go there and really loved it.
0: Mm. Brent Thompson was there too, Steve. That's
1: right. BT was there. Um, mm. Got along really well with BT, played a bit of golf with him and, um, yeah, one of the one of the great riders of all time and uh, true gentleman.
0: Mm. We'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast back after this. The sale that has produced the likes of the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Jarb, Russian Revolution, Moss Fun, Pino and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yearling Sale catalog is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's yearling sales season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalog of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group One winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shoals, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Done Deal, I Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award, and Pinot. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Reign, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway, and Diesel. The 2019 English Easter Yealing sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online. My special guest is Stephen Arnold. Around 2000, when you landed back in Melbourne, Russell Cameron had moved there, had set up shop and you obviously linked up with him.
1: Yeah, that's right. When I decided to make the move, I I was, um, I think I was 24 or 25 and I was riding in 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 Macau and it got to the stage where I thought well I'm going to be here for the next 5 years or you know I'm going to make the decision to come back and have a have a, a real go in in Australia mm. and I hadn't ridden a I really hadn't ridden a group 1 winner at that stage and mm. was really something that I wanted to to have a go at it and tick off if I could mm. so uh, I, I decided to move back and and have a solid uh, have a solid uh, crack in Melbourne which I did and I was lucky enough that Russell Cameron had moved across from Adelaide and he was going well at the time and had some really nice horses. So he put his full support behind me. And um, yeah, we, we had a good run.
0: It was Russell Cameron who supplied that all important Group 1 winner. Horse called all time high in the 1,000 guineas, and Steve Arnold had arrived.
1: Yeah, I sort of uh, we, we we were going quite well at the time, and um, just lucky enough that you know, like, like you know, all racing stories, everything just fell into place at the right time. Got on the filly, and she was one. You know, I think they carried, as I say, fifty five and a half, so had to be in that range again. But uh, mm. she powered down the middle and and won the won the uh, thousand guineas, which. As I say, it was my first group one, and yeah, great thrill to to tick that box and even bigger thrill to to do it for a you know, great supporter, Russell Cameron.
0: A Thousand Guineas was a good race for you. You won it again later on Magical Miss for Bart Cummings. Magical Miss missed out in the wakeful, but went into the oaks and bolted in, Steve. She won by five lengths.
1: Yeah, she was a great filly uh, Magical Miss. She was... She came along at a good time for me because it's, it's sort of uh, it really I was riding a little bit for Bart at the time. He he obviously trained her and uh, able to get on her and and she was a she was an awesome big filly and really well bred and uh, as you say she she won the Oaks in a canter and was never going to get beat. So um, gave me a lot of confidence riding for Bart and. Um, Great great men to ride for.
0: You won a group two uh, later on the same filly, the Memsey Stakes. She was very lightly raced. She only had 16 starts. Did she go amiss?
1: Yeah, she did. She broke down in, the, in that, um, I think it was that spring. She came back really well and beat some beat some really good horses in the Memsey. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure I thought she could have, you know, she. I think she was favourite for the Caulfield Cup. Um, I wouldn't have been able to ride if she had no weight, but I'm sure at some stage, you know, she could have been a Cox plate horse. She was that good. So um mm. yeah, it was a shame, shame to lose her, but she was a, a big, big, heavy filly and um she probably just put a lot of strain on her legs and um that was disappointing, but um really happy to have the opportunity to be associated with her.
0: One of your early group ones that gave you a hell of a big kick was the Doomben ten thousand on a horse called Undue. Now, this is a good story, Steve, because Undue started his life at the Crown Lodge establishment of Jack and Bob Ingham and in Adelaide, actually, at their Adelaide stable, he'd won one race at Balaclava and was sold to a group of owners from the Northern Territory. And one year later, up you, Bob, in the Doomben 10,000.
1: Yeah, he was a great little horse, little command horse, and um, I think he must have had some problems there at... Um at, at the Inghams, and um, they sort of moved him on, which is which is understandable. I mean, they have that many horses. Uh, I mean, the percentages are. They have to move them on, and and one's going to slip through now and again. But um, it was a great pickup for for some guys from Darwin. Um, his trainer Shane Clark, I sort of known him. Basically, all my life because we went, we used to go to the carnival in Darwin uh, every year. So um, incredible, you know. I used to shake my head when I'd be standing in a Group One race, you know, riding for Shane Clark at uh, at uh, Doomben. So um, great thrill to to win on him, and he was he was a beautiful little horse. One of the he was one of the nicest horses to ride in a race. He was just push button, mm. easy to ride. Um, and yeah, he he won an Oakley Plate as well. So he was a really good, solid Group One performer.
0: You didn't ride very often for the Peter Moody stable, uh, but he did throw you on a, a mare called Sank Cento in two thousand and seven, and up you bobbed in the Doomben Cup.
1: Yeah, I didn't ride a heap for Pete, but when it, when when the chance was there to fill in, like he had his couple stable jockeys, but um, had a bit of luck for him when I when I got to fill in for him, and um, I, I went and rode her in a in a race at uh, Adelaide, and she won, um, and then he sent her up to. Um, to Brisbane, but I didn't know that Peter that well at that time. And when she went to Adelaide, I said to him, "Oh, gee, she's she's screwed down. She's pretty screwed down, Peter." That was the last bit of advice I gave him because he said it's not a show ring, mate, and, <laughs> and that was about <laughs> it. So, he? Uh, yeah. so I, he sort of put me back in my place then. And uh, yeah, she went up and was yeah. I was lucky enough to win the um, the Dooman Cup on her and a uh, great little mare.
0: Mm. You rode a brilliant and hugely talented mare called Spinning Hill for the late Guy Walter. I think your very first ride on Spinning Hill, you won the Group One Lightning at Flemington.
1: Yeah, she was a she was a great mare, um, and uh, what a great trainer, Guy Walter, and and it really a lovely fella. He's, um, he come down and we worked, uh, I went to Ballarat and worked her during that week and gee, she gave me an, an unbelievable feeling. She had that great turn of foot, which some sprinters have. I mean, horses are all different and there's, there's some that can sort of race near their top the whole way and they don't give you that unbelievable, um, turn of foot. But she, mm. once she was relaxed and coiled up, she had a really sensational, um, burst of speed and, uh, yeah, lucky enough to win the lightning on her and she was pretty dominant that day. It was a, was a good win and, um, mm. yeah, just great to be associated with a good mare like that and such a great trainer.
0: You rode her in a couple of races in Sydney. She ran second in the Sapphire Stakes and third in the TJ Smith. She won a total of 14 all up. I'll tell you who won a race on uh, Spinning Hill one day in Melbourne, if memory serves me rightly, Frankie Dottori.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, he won a race at Mooney Valley on her. She. Um, mm. I think Frankie hadn't – I don't think he'd ridden a lot of winners here, but, um, yeah, he rode Spinning Hill and he rode it beautifully. Just, you need to coil her up and, and sit her out the back, and and she unla- launched a uh, great turn of foot there at the valley and, um, yeah, one of Frankie's uh, wins in Australia.
0: In early 2009, you got yourself on a very good West Aussie sprinter by the name of Scenic Blast, little realising what lay ahead – The previous spring, he'd run second in the Caulfield Guineas and third in the Ascot Vale. Uh, Dan Morton was very keen to get him back to Melbourne in early 2009. He had one run at Ascot before coming back to Melbourne. He ran second, I think, and then he went to the Lightning Stakes. How did you get on Scenic Blast?
1: (laughs) Yeah, he was he was a bit of a uh, it was a bit of a fluke really that I got on scenic Blast. I sort of still remember I got a call or a text off off Dan Morton and just said, uh, you know, can I can I sit on him in the lightning? He thought it'd be a bit short for him, but he was heading towards the uh, probably going to head towards the the new market. They tried to get him out in a little bit of ground over in his three year old year, but he didn't really stay. Um, so yeah, he'd freshened him up and brought him back and and just wanted me to sit on him in the lightning. He had the thought that. You know, I was, I was probably known as being able to ride them a bit quietly through the early stages in a race, and, mm. and that's where that exactly what that horse has needed. He needed sort of a, a quiet ride through the first half of the race, and then mm. – he, 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 like Spinning Hill, had a, had a really uh, a high top speed. When he, when he um, unleashed, he could really you know, hit a big top speed and had a, had a huge turn of foot. So um, yeah. that was the start of a, uh, a really good uh, ride for, for me and Dan Morton and all the owners.
0: Yes, well, he won that lightning, uh, then ran fifth in the Oakley Plate, won the new market, and then out for a spell with much bigger plans on the table. Now, when he lined up in the Kingstand Stakes at Royal Ascot, Steve, he hadn't raced for over three months. Uh, I mean, this man really knew his horse, didn't he, Dan Morton? But I guess that's the way the horse needed to be for a 1,000-metre straight race at Ascot.
1: Yeah, that's right, John. He was a, He was a bit of a fragile horse, so... Dan had to. Dan did a super job with the horse. He he sort of had to. Um, when I got a bit closer to him over in um, in the UK, I realised that he, you know, as I say, is a bit of a fragile horse. Dan had to sort of cuddle him a little bit and just have him, have him peeking for that right. Right uh, on that day, you know, his his big grand final and to go to Royal Ascot, um, we knew the thousand metres was perfect for him because, it, the, you know, the speed was good and it used to let him get off the bridle. And then, as I say, he had a, he had a big turn of foot. But just the whole experience to go to to Royal Ascot, you know, that you'd, you'd watch for years. My mum's from um, from the UK, so you sort of heard a lot about it. But to go and, you know, be sitting on a, a genuine chance in a Group 1 race at Royal Ascot was sort of a um, kid from Alice Springs. I was sort of pinching myself for the whole week, to be honest.
0: Oh, you'd have to be. And in the run, were you always confident?
1: I was yeah he um there was sort of a row went out there was a lot of runners and obviously down the straight there so they say so sort of go in a line a bit and I was able just to park in behind that that row of of speed and he just travelled sweetly in the run um, I'd come and give him clear air about the furlong and a half and he, he quickened like he could, quickened beautifully. Mm. Uh, actually thought, oh, I've got here a little bit early because, um, mm. you know, he put pay to them that quickly. But over the last 100 metres, he was, you know, I was looking for the post and so was he. But uh, mm. he was able to scrape home and uh, great thrill pulling up and coming back, you know, in, the, uh, in the, at that famous track.
0: Mm. Well, you stayed on for a few weeks to ride him in the July Cup at Newmarket. He started favourite there um, with no luck. I think he had problems after the race, but he went everywhere, this horse. He raced in Japan, Hong Kong, even in California.
1: Yeah, that's right. The horse, um, he bled a couple of times. I think that's what it might have ended his career. So um, I think the idea with America was obviously, um, you know, they can treat them for the bleeding over there. So he went to uh, America to, to, to race on Lasix. And, um, but, yeah, he gave us a great ride. He, as you say, he went all over the world, which the good sprinters can do. Um, he, he didn't – the July, it's a new market and that. That track's unbelievable. The the last hundred meters, it's basically uphill, and he was um, he was a bit of a horse that used to use his turner foot, and then he'd be a little bit weak late. So that hill really found him out. The last bit, it was. Um, Testing is the word I was looking for. It's a very yeah. testing track. That last hundred meters, um, they they really finds them out, and you have to be a, a really st- strong, not a stayer, but you have to have really good um, you know substance to get up that hill. And he he's just faded out a bit late.
0: Well, that brings part one of our interview to a close, Steve. Uh, we'll be back to present part two a little later, and you'll be telling us about probably the best horse you ever threw a leg across. He may not have been the fastest, he may not have had the greatest turn of speed of any of the good horses you rode, but boy, did he have some bottom. The incomparable, so you think, and that'll be in part two with Stephen Arnold the sale that has produced the likes of the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Esterjarb, Russian Revolution, Moss Fun, Pinot and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yelling Sale catalogue is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's Yearling Sale season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalogue of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group One winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shulls, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Dundeal, Deal, Eye Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award, and Pino. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Rain, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway, and Dizel. The 2019 English Easter Yearling Sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online.